Hello and welcome to the Toast podcast with me, Laura Barton. For our third series, The Making of a Pioneer, Toast is collaborating with the National Portrait Gallery here in central London to explore the lives of six pioneering women, past and present. All have a portrait hanging in the gallery and we will be joined by authors, artists and in some cases the subjects themselves to discuss what it is that makes a pioneer and where this pioneering spirit was born. There is a portrait of the Australian academic, writer and broadcaster Jermaine Greer by Paula Rago that shows its subject filling the canvas, legs apart, dressed in scarlet red. A major voice of second-wave feminism, in 1970 Greer published The Female Eunuch, which argued that traditional family structures repress women's sexuality. Still the most widely read feminist text, it has never been out of print. Greer has long courted controversy, and is regarded by many as a combative and frequently frustrating icon of feminism. In the face of often fierce criticism, she has, however, remained unapologetic. In recent years, she has spoken provocatively about rape sentencing, trans rights, religion, the art of Leonardo da Vinci, and the derriere of the Australian Prime Minister. A New Statesman column once stated that Greer doesn't get into trouble occasionally or inadvertently, but consistently, and with the attitude of a tank rolling directly into a crowd of infantry. For all of this, Greer remains a crucial and powerful figure in the development of feminist thinking, who cannot be ignored. One Guardian commentator put it, as it goes with pioneering figures, there is much to doubt and dismiss, yet we are still indebted to them, as we are to Greer, for taking risks in the first place. It is a creaky floor, it's getting creaky earth. It's a steel frame building, so it's not going to fall over. Greer is 80 now still writing, still vocal. On a midweek morning, she leads me from her office to an annex, pausing to speak to the doves bobbing in and out of the dovecote. Yes, yes, you're fine, don't worry. And to look out over the garden she has lovingly created over the last three decades. Oh, baby. It's all right. How many are there for? No, there are a lot. For the past 35 years, Greer has divided her time between her home here in Essex and her native Australia. Soon, she plans to make a permanent relocation to her homeland, leaving behind her garden and her dovecote for a patch of rainforest in southeast Queensland, with its bowerbirds, snakes, marsupials, and white beach. Could you tell us what you remember about sitting for the portrait? Uh, well. I had already written about Paula mm -hmm. and I'd been to see her retrospective, I think. And she thrilled me as a painter because she was so strong and so headlong. And there was nothing timid or coy about the way she worked. And she took hard subjects like abortion and so on and made picture stories out of them. And she's an extraordinary draftswoman for a start. And I had written about her work from all kinds of points of view. It's theatricality, the way it presents a scene, all taking her perfectly seriously as a painter. Then I think what happens next is the NPG asks her if she'd paint a portrait for them. Now she normally doesn't paint portraits. So then I, I went down to her studio with the complete box set of 
the ring of the Nibelungen, so that we get through it somehow or other. And I think altogether I sat for seven hours. But about the first hour was kind of wasted because Paula just couldn't make the image do anything. She said, this is not working, I'm not getting anywhere. So then we had a bit of a think and I said, look, why don't I sit like this? So then I'm just jammed in the picture frame so that my knees are nearly touching the side and I will put my feet together like this and I had my old silver runners on and then I put my hands in the shape of a vulva uh, which I thought somebody might actually recognise. Not that the British spend much time looking at it, don't actually pay it much attention at all but anyway. <laughs> so there we are, vulva, shoes and then I just sat and sat and sat and sat because that's what you do. So tell us about your creative process then and how, how that is different. Well, I do a lot of research, tons and tons and tons. Like today, I'm trying to write this book called Are We There Yet? Which is that children's question. Is this tedious journey maybe over? And the bad news is it hasn't even begun. That we're still talking equality, which is pointless. It's profoundly a conservative idea. It would change nothing. It would mean that women did the same things that men do with the same catastrophic outcomes. And I, there's no point in that. If we don't bring something different to the table, then there's no point in bringing us to the table at all. And so today I've been working on a puzzle. I know that women in England are turning to Salafism, which is a version of Wahhabism. Um, and extremely conservative Islam and they're going for it big time they're going for the veil for modest dress you've got to say a prayer before you go to the toilet and you're not allowed to even think of God while you're on the toilet so I'm trying to work out why they're they're turning to Islam and it's partly wanting to join the downtrodden but it's also a rejection of the Western way of life. And I, you do wonder, with the commodification of women's bodies and all, if they can ever escape from it. And girls are going to school now in, in full makeup with false eyelashes and hair extensions and the works. And you think, you're fake. Your tits aren't real, your nose isn't real. And I can see why at a certain point, a woman's stomach might turn and she might say, I would rather be invisible. I would rather be able to sit on this chair with my legs apart and nobody looking up my dress. I like the idea. It's like a, a cloak of invisibility, the chador. So I've been having great fun doing that, and, but I won't even write the chapter until that is gelled into a sensible account. Because at the moment it's all full of contradictions. I've got myself completely Banjaks. God forbid that I should read more and suddenly turn Islamic. That would be <laughs> shocking. That would be a lovely turn up for the books late, later in your life. That's um, pretty late already. I'm 80 without doing it. Well, I think you've still got a stretch before. Um, I hope you're right. I well, so. I do I hope you're right. It's getting so awful. Maybe I don't. Is it? Mm. You begin to wonder if we've ever done anything we meant to do. And if all we've ever done is just lie about the accidents that happened. And what did you mean to do in your life? And you said you sometimes wonder if you ever did what you meant to do. I never, well, 
<laughs> I was going to say I never intended to do anything. When I started out to write a book, I was fairly certain it would be remainder there. That's the very opposite of what actually happened because it was it's never been out of print, has it? Which is sad in itself. I mean, there should be at least as many books about feminism as there are about cooking. So that's a bit disappointing and it wasn't meant to be a school book. Although it was meant for young people, it was meant for people who hadn't thought about the issue at all. You know, and it uh, it asks very basic questions and they're about very physical things. And I still think that's where the nub of the problem lies, which is why I don't get involved in the gender debate. I mean, they keep trying to involve me, but it's not who I am and I'm not interested, basically. I'm interested in women and it worries me that we still don't know how women work. We don't know why some women are well and other women are sick. You know, some women have no problems at menopause. Well, if some don't, then none should. So find out what's going on. I mean, I'm thinking at the moment of writing a letter to the trays descriptions people because there is an ad going around in which a woman is uh, standing in brown pants and she says, oh, I realised some things would change when I became a mother. Bigger boobs, she says. But then the next thing she says is incontinence. No, incontinence is not an inevitable accompaniment of childbirth. And if you are incontinent, go to the doctor and get it sorted out. But that advertisement is should be deleted because if you are frightened, is going to make you more frightened and going to make you spend money you can't afford. That fear that has been capitalised on for, for women for ever, do you think it's worse than it was in 1970 when the female unit was published? Mm. Or just different? We wouldn't have mentioned it. We wouldn't have mentioned incontinence and we wouldn't have stuck it on TV. We would never have discussed it. We didn't... Um, we didn't even discuss sanitary protection, that ridiculous name, protection from your own blood, for Christ's sake. And there wasn't forever a vagina in the news. I mean, now it's there all the time. You know, look at me. I am going to play basketball, even though I'm menstruating. Wow! Oh, for fuck's sake. Have you ever played basketball when you've been menstruating? <laughs> Well, I was a bit young, I think. I did play basketball and I went up to catch a ball and I came down on the head of, of a shorter girl and took the back of my front tooth. I'd only just got the front tooth and I went and busted it on the head of Alice Rogers or whatever her name was. Let's hope she's listening. Um, you said about the, the book you're working on at the moment is also addressing equality and the slightly, in your view, ludicrous notion of equality for men and women. I guess the female eunuch was, was suggesting something quite similar, or you have talked about that many times. Why have we still not got that message? Well, everybody thinks equality is fair, even though we can't do it. We can't pay women the same as we pay men. Either we can't afford it, or they don't want us to because they're actually working harder outside their workplace than they are in. And you've got, that's the elephant in the room, is the unpaid work that women do, which is going to stop them really getting that seat on the board. And they'll get the seat on the board if they're good organisation women, but they won't be brilliant. They won't be Bill Gates, because that's not where their hearts are. 
and all their heads, really, I think. Women's Centre is directed towards communitarian things, relationships, um, street-level life, genuine things that are really happening. The sort of conceptual notion of the corporate world is beyond us. We still don't get power. We haven't a clue about power. So, I don't know. Equality was never the idea for me. I don't want to be a corporation person. And most of the corporation people I see around me are miserable. So the idea was liberation. Now that's a tougher thing. And for me, I dealt with that by going towards creativity. You know, why is it that we haven't been able to paint pictures as well as men could? What was that about? Why couldn't we do it? Well, partly we couldn't dominate the picture space. We were frightened of the picture space. I guess we don't dominate any space in in a really similar way. How did you dominate space when you were growing up? And I'm thinking about when you walked first into that meeting at the Sydney Push or anything like that. How did you take up more space? I don't think I did. I was clumsy. Couldn't dance without falling over. But I I had a dreadful physical culture teacher and she was a great slab of a woman who had it in for me, probably because I didn't try hard enough. And uh, she once called me a big ape. <sighs> I suppose I was fairly used to people being rude to me. But she did say one helpful thing. She said, when you go into a room, try to see as far back on people's heads as you can. And I think I did do that. So I didn't be round-shouldered, because I was very tall and very early. So. And, and that's an invitation to slouch. But I looked at the back of their heads instead of slouching, so that was good. I'm not actually terribly self-conscious. And that's one reason why, for example, I did comedy at school. And I didn't mind making a complete horse's ass of myself as long as somebody laughed. Where did that lack of self-consciousness come from? I have no idea. I'm not good at introspection, obviously. I I don't know where. Do you think it is one of the things that has sort of sustained you and has allowed you to be so pioneering throughout your your life and your career? Well, I think you could argue that I I speak before I think about the effect that what I'm saying is going to have. I'm generally concentrating on just saying exactly what it is I mean to say. And if people are going to behave oddly or take it in a strange way, well... I frankly can't really be bothered with it. So do you ever worry about the effect, or have you ever worried about the effect, something that you've said or written? You can't control the effect because people misread. They misread constantly and sometimes deliberately. But I am interested in this other subject about whether we've got anywhere and whether women are closer to transforming power and transforming political structures so that there's room for women and children. Instead, we join the army and go and kill them. Have you ever felt powerful yourself? Do you feel powerful now? No. No, I can't sell the house. Why would I? (laughs) Come on, house. Get going. Get sold. It's a beautiful house and everyone should buy it. (laughs) Um, Could you tell me about when you have done things that have been particularly controversial, I'm thinking particularly of Suck mm. and, and when you swore on stage in New Zealand, the moment you made that decision to be involved with Suck, to swear, what did you feel 
Did you feel a sort of an energy that you were going to change something by doing those things? Well, what happened in New Zealand was that I was approached by students who said that one of their student leaders had actually been arrested for saying, I think the word he used was bullshit. I think it was bullshit and fuck, wasn't it? There were two bullshits and a fuck. (laughs) And so they came up to me and said, would you use the word bullshit because they won't arrest you? And I said, don't be too sure. But if you want me to say the word, I'll say it. If it means we liberate the word, then we liberate it. So I said bullshit twice in the town hall in Auckland, was I? I think it was Auckland, yeah. The next day, I think, there was a meeting. The subject was a sexual subject, but I can't remember exactly what it was. But in talking to this subject, I used the word fuck in the non-sadistic way. But to my astonishment, a woman who was wheeling her baby in a pram through the back of the garden in the place where I was talking made a complaint to the police. I think she actually was so upset that she heard this word and her baby might have heard it too that she went to the police. So the next thing I know is that I'm at the airport on my way to Wellington or somewhere and a, a policeman turns up with a blue sheet of paper, which is a summons wow. um, to appear in court the next day. And I remember saying to him, is this why you joined the police force? <laughs> because <laughs> this is so stupid. <laughs> and I'm afraid I, I managed to rescue the bullshits, but I lost the fuck. But it was very funny because... I had to do my own defence. So the next minute I'm suddenly told that I've got to pay a fine of something or other. And I said to the judge, I refuse to pay fines as a way of discriminating against the poor. If there's a jail sentence. And so I got three weeks. I thought it would be a week. And it was three weeks. Anyway, so there I stood with the sweat running off me in a hand-knitted dress that I did myself in this courtroom thinking they're going to send me to Mount Holyoke I think the prison is called and uh, the warders are going to strip me naked and have their way with me oh no no I don't want to go to jail I'm also severely claustrophobic jail would have been a nightmare so I stood and stood and stood meanwhile Auckland went mad and the police cars are being turned over and there's absolute pandemonium and I'm still standing there and then someone paid the fine into the body of the court and I know it was a newspaper I think and uh, the next thing I know is the police are getting me out of there but they had to take me under the building because if I'd gone out and appeared in the street nobody knew what was going to happen. Now when it came to suck I knew that too. But again, but there was a strategy there that we were, I wanted to do again, a non-sadistic porno mag. So I sat down with this bunch of hippies and said, you know, we've got to do it a different way. We, the editors, are naked and they can see us. Um, we have as much to lose by, or, or more, depending, because we were older and uglier for one thing. Um, so I then arranged to do my picture which had to be incapable of reproduction anywhere 
and the only way you could reproduce it would be to crop it in such a way that it had no pornographic content whatsoever. I realised, you know, that it was about as revealing as it could be. But we were also going through a phase where we were gradually showing a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. And I just thought, well, bugger that for a laugh. Let's just blow it. Let's have a look at the whole box and dice. So I went off with this photographer who later died of drowning. And we took that picture with my ankles crossed behind my head. And then what happened is I expected us to have a masthead with us all naked. Here we are, the editorial board. Instead, it was page three, it, the whole page, 15 by 11, with a signature cut off from one of my letters and put on the bottom as if it was a pin-up shot. And uh, I then realised that actually you couldn't liberate pornography and you just couldn't do it. And that all these people who pretended to care about sexual liberation didn't give a fuck about it. When you swore publicly in New Zealand, you were among a few people who possibly were pushing the boundaries of what was polite language, I guess around a similar time. So um, uh, Bill Grundy, uh, for example, with the Sex Pistols. Did you feel part of a movement testing the boundaries or do you think that being a pioneer is a, a solitary task? I certainly don't think that being a pioneer is a solitary time. I don't even think of myself as a pioneer, really. And if you were to ask me who I would have looked at as inhabiting the space with me, I would have said Derek and Clive, for example, because they used outrageous, ridiculous obscenity till it became metaphysical and astonishing and prodigious and helplessly funny we could not stop laughing because it was ridiculous i mean there is another odd thing about this i i realized years ago that nearly everything that people said about me was wrong most of it was made up because if you went to melbourne university someone said oh jermaine greenwood oh yes uh, i once saw her dancing on the table in the four in hand, you know. It's my idea of absolute anguish is to be caught dancing naked on a table. But I can't, I mean, you can't take people's anecdotes away from them. You know, they've dined out on these stories all their lives and they've got more and more bizarre and further and further from the truth the whole time. And so I've got to the point where I think I won't write my autobiography and I think I don't own my story. I'm now at least partly invented by other people. And I can't kill their invention. It's actually got more energy than I do. So what I've done is I've just given the raw material. These are things that cannot be denied. They are letters, they are articles I've written, they're drafts, they're this, this. If people really want to know I wouldn't say about me, if they want to know about late 20th century feminism, here's a place to look. But uh, there's one come up lately in the Scottish Herald, which, which has a story in it. A priest was once scandalised by seeing me sitting in a public square without any knickers on, and he could see my vagina. 
I just couldn't. I mean, you just have to laugh, don't you? Where did this come from? I sort of love it, though. Yeah, but how much time do I spend sitting in a public square? It's no next time. As for a priest seeing it. Well, <laughs> hilarious. You say that you wouldn't write an autobiography. Would you ever just do a collection of stories about you that aren't true? Without, without comment. Look, they're all out there. Let them just sink or swim. So what is the biggest misconception people have about you? I'm going to put in a little caveat or a little uh, side point that I think people forget that you're very funny. I think people think of you as a... I think people think as a feminist generally as being very serious, particularly second wave. Well, we're also supposed to be strident. I wish we were. Make more noise, please. I think one of the biggest misconceptions is that I'm a lesbian. I mean, there's plenty of horny-handed sons of toil out there who swear on a stack of Bibles that I was a les. And all I can say is I wish. What part of this garden, which is the most gorgeous garden, what are you going to miss the most when, when you move? I don't miss things. Because I've got a forest where I'm moving, and the forest, we've just had a wonderful thing happen, which is that our great big pythoness, we have a very big female python, whom we call Jessie Norman, which isn't very respectful, but she doesn't mind. <laughs> and she is huge. Um, and she's definitely commands all the young males. The females are vulnerable in the python tribe because they have to keep their eggs warm when they're brooding and that wears them down so that they get too weak to resist a predator um, and so they get knocked off quite a lot. But she, we hadn't seen her for five years and I thought mm, she'll have been run over, that's what usually happens. And she turned up three weeks ago okay. and she went to her favourite rock because it's like a big storage heater, a rock. Of course. And she wound herself around her rock. And she heard everyone coming and going and she wasn't bothered. So she's home. Is that how you'll feel when you get back as well? No, Earth is my home. But you don't miss anything, you said. I won't miss the garden. Mm -hmm. I could take anything with me that I wanted to take. Well, but I won't do that. If I live in the rainforest, that's one thing. I've got a huge garden that I made with thousands of trees in it. But uh, there's another possibility that I live near my sister in Victoria. And in that case, I'll make a garden. But I'll make a garden with things that are endemic. But see, I'll be living next door to my sister, the botanist, so I won't be allowed to be approximate. <laughs> but the funny thing is, you see, that she thinks that I worked so hard at my botany because I wanted to compete with her, because that's how sisters think. And uh, it's wrong. Really? Well, I wanted to have something to share with her. Oh. Well, we've got it sorted out now, I yeah. think. Yeah, yeah. Toast podcasts are presented by me, Laura Barton, produced by Jeff Bird and conceived by Emily Mears. All the portraits discussed in this series are part of the National Portrait Gallery's permanent collection. The gallery, founded in 1856, is situated in St Martin's Place, up behind Trafalgar Square, it faces out towards Covent Garden. Toast is a British lifestyle and clothing brand that aspires to a slower, more thoughtful way of life. To listen to more episodes from this series and earlier series, 
head to Toast Magazine, which can be found via the Toast website, www.toa.st. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do like and subscribe.